just a little black rain cloud hovering under the honey tree. I'm only a little black rain cloud. Pay no attention to little me. Oh, everyone knows that a rain cloud never eats honey. No, not a nip. I'm just floating around over the ground, wondering where I will drip. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It's episode 15 time, so that means our comfort movie month is continuing. And if that song you just heard doesn't give you comfort, nothing I'm about to say in the next hour is is going to help you. you. You're probably hopeless. You should take some extreme steps to try and, you know, pull up those socks. Because if Winnie the Pooh singing I'm a Little Black Rain Cloud doesn't do it, I got I got nothing. Her- heroin, maybe? I've, I've heard that's pretty great, you know? It would have to be if you're shooting shit into your eyeball, but, you know, different strokes. Some people Winnie the Pooh, some people mainlining opioids directly into the eyeball. So, having never stuck a needle in my eye for recreational purposes, I can't say if it's as good as Winnie the Pooh, but gonna go out on a limb and say no? But that's just me. So, as we got off to, uh, start off last week, comfort movie month this week. I'm not gonna lay in too much to what's going on. We all know what's going on in the world. We're watching TV and the various craziness and good news. I will say, though, if you're looking for a hit of good news, uh, John Krasinski has started a YouTube channel that's just good news. There's no negativity, no nothing. The entire thing is just cute and charming and wonderful, and it's just the good news. So check that. I think it's called Just the Good News Channel or something to that effect. Just search John Krasinski Good News. You'll probably find what you're looking for. So last week... We talked about Ghostbusters 2, and a big thank you to everybody that checked that out. I hope you had a chance to revisit the movie and get what comfort from it you can or could. This week, though, big guns time. You know, Ghostbusters 2 is one thing, but this movie is top shelf. This is like when things get really bad. You know, like this isn't, you know, run out of Funyun, stub my toe bad. This is, you you know, you've just watched Threads. (laughs) or martyrs, and you need a real extreme pick-me-up. This is, well, it kind of comes back to the heroin analogy. This is comfort in a syringe, 10 cc's right to the eyeball. So this week, I'm going to be talking about one of my all-time favorites, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. So, from 1977, let's get the synopsis out of the way. In this collection of animated shorts based on the stories and character of A.A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh, a honey-loving teddy bear, embarks on some eccentric adventures. I like that. That works for me. So being a horror guy, I get a horror and metal guy, long hair, beard, all that. I get a lot of weird looks from people when they find out uh, how big a Winnie the Pooh fan I am. And I get, I've been accused of lying about it, you know, just trying to to get people's goat. Just like when people find out I was a Sunday school teacher, you fucking no way. I'm like, yes, it's true. I have videotaped evidence of me being a Sunday school teacher. But with Winnie the Pooh, it's something that was, it's probably predates Ghostbusters as my first obsession as a kid. And it's something that I've never really let go. I don't see any reason why. I should let it go. Uh, right behind me now as we record, or as I'm recording, I have a Winnie the Pooh poster uh, sitting directly above my Evil Dead poster. 
which just kind of explains me in the in a nutshell. That's always been kind of how I go. I think that's probably speaks to my anxiety and depression. Is like I'm a very polar person, you know, not bipolar. I had myself checked, but I tend to really gravitate to extremes. You know, whether it's Winnie the Pooh and horror or, you know, Great Big Sea and heavy metal, I, I like extremes of things. If I'm going to do something, you might as well go and do like the biggest thing on either spectrum you can do. Right? At least that's just me and people that know me are like, yeah, that sounds like his behavior. All right. <laughs> but with Winnie the Pooh uh, and just to get out of the way, this week's going to be a lot like last week. Just buckle up for some storytelling. So I... As a kid, Winnie the Pooh was was it for me. And when I say kid, I'm talking like one, two, three years old. And I had a Winnie the Pooh, Pooh a Winnie the Pooh. I wonder how many times I'm going to say that today. A Winnie the Pooh mural on my wall of Pooh hanging from the the balloon with uh, with a couple of bees floating around him. I had that on my wall as a kid. And we used to rent this movie, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, when it first hit VHS. And my parents would rent it for me constantly as, you know, at one, two, three years old, because it was one of the guaranteed ways to get me to either A, be quiet or B, go to sleep. And usually those were their goals because I was a really wired kid. I was allergic to everything. So I was always bouncing off the walls. I was just, I was what you would call a high maintenance child. I was stunning with my perfectly round head and my beautiful blonde hair. And I know it's all since gone downhill, but I was, uh, I was high maintenance child. And my parents actually found out uh, once that they were taking the movie back to the video store and they asked the guy, can we just buy this? Like, would it be easier? And he pulls it up in the computer and he said, you know that you guys are one of only two people that have rented this movie in the last, I think it was a couple of months because we would return it and this other couple with a young child would come in and rent it. They'd bring it back. We'd go in and rent it, and it went back and forth like that because they had a kid, and the only way to get him to go to fuck to sleep was Winnie the Pooh. So they looked into buying it, but this is 87, 88, and it was like 150 bucks because, as some people might recall, back in the day, VHS tapes cost a fortune. Even the, the garbage, you know, wizard video, the dreck you were buying at gas stations cost anywhere from 50 to $100, because these are coming directly from the studio. So the video store has to buy them at cost, and then you recoup your costs by renting them out. That's how the rental industry works, for all you young people out there. Until, you know, home video sales really started to explode in the early 90s. That was the only way to get it, was to buy shit direct from the video store, and it cost a fortune. And we had no fucking money, so we sure as hell weren't doing that. So it just kind of went back and forth in this way. And I just, I never got past it. I, I even had, I had a Winnie the Pooh comforter that I took to college with me. Yes, I did. And believe it or not, I wasn't a huge wad. I was a weirdo, but I wasn't a huge wad in college, and that comforter was a hit. It got a, a lot of praise. People thought it was a bold move. And then some motherfucker stole it out of my dryer in third year, the apartment I was living in. I took, took my laundry down, went to change my laundry over, and someone had stolen it. Who would do that? Because first off, who would believe that it was belonged to a 21-year-old and they were just like, oh, fuck that guy. What does he need? I'm taking it. So you would assume that if you saw that in a in a dryer, it belonged to a kid. What kind of sick fuck would steal that from a child? Man, Oakville, 
No class. School on Sundays. That's what Oakville is. But with Poe, it's just I've always been there. Uh, My girlfriend in high school, uh, Jen, she loved it too. It's one of the things we kind of bonded on. And when they started re-releasing the movies, or when the new movies came out, Pooh's Grand Adventure, Tigger Movie, Piglet's Big Movie, I went and saw them in theaters. And there was nothing more awkward than being, I think, 18 or so. (laughs) Me and Jen went to see Piglet's Big Movie sitting in the theater, just the two of us, and we were the only ones in there without kids. And that was fun. It also didn't help the Piglet's Big Movie was actually quite bad. But that's that's a story for another time. But I've always kept up with it. And for me, Winnie the Pooh feels safe. If I had to bring up a feeling for me, I don't have the same monster amount of nostalgic memories that I have with Ghostbusters 2, which you could almost call uh, safely a complex that I have around that film. With Winnie the Pooh, it's just, it's like a blanket, just a cozy blanket that I can put on and I feel completely safe. And I think that's true with a lot of other people. Now, I know there's people that take, adults that take their Winnie the Pooh obsessions to quite extreme lengths. I'm not that person. I have other things, weird obsessions that I take to extreme lengths. But you just put it on, especially these, the original shorts. You put it on, you hear that music, you see that animation, and from the, the opening credits when they're floating through Christopher Robin's bedroom, you're returning to a world that you're completely familiar with. And it's exactly the way you left it, and you can just slide right back into it, and you're safe and comfortable. And the outside world can't get you. Sure, they deal with problems in the Hundred Acre Woods, but they're usually, they're, they're pretty easily solved problems. You know, they're not dealing with, oh, look, Piglet's hooked on crack this week. What are we going to do? Who'd they buy the crack from? Well, obviously Eeyore, he's already depressed. No, obviously no one's on crack in the Hundred Acre Woods. Maybe Gopher, because he's pretty wound. But I think that might be more methamphetamines. I just think Rabbit would probably be methamphetamines. But I'm sequitering. Way off topic here. Non-sequitur? Can you have a sequitur? I guess that does make sense. Anyway doesn't matter. None of that has any bearing on what I'm talking about today. But this feeling of, of safety that you get from the films, that's really what I wanted to kind of talk about today, because that's, that's what these movies do for me. So the original film, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, the classic that we know, was originally released as three shorts, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, and Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. And then in 77, those three shorts were put together and released as The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Because originally when Walt Disney bought the property and brought it to the studio and he's like, this is going to be the next big thing, this is going to be our next movie, he realized that American kids weren't really familiar in any way with Winnie the Pooh. Not to the same level that kids were familiar with it in Britain, having grown up reading the A.A. Milne stories with the Ernest Shepard drawings. There was an institution. It was an institution there the way that Winnie the Pooh is an institution everywhere now. To be perfectly honest, I've, I never cared for the original illustrations. They're cute and they're whimsical. But I guess you should call it kind of that classic Pooh style. It was never really my thing. I, To me, Winnie the Pooh and all the characters look like they do from the Disney version. You know, it's the Winnie the Pooh in yellow and his red shirt. That, to me, is is Pooh Bear, not the, the bear walking through the woods, the stuffed bear. I get it, 
they're beautiful, and they translated a lot of that aesthetic to these shorts. But it was never really for me, and I always feel bad because people, they find out I'm a Winnie the Pooh fan, and especially if they want to do something nice, you know, whether it's about a Christmas or birthday or whatever, you get a card or something, and it's classic Pooh. And, of course, it's happy to get anything. But I'm like, ah, because they're waiting. Do you hate when you do that where you know that you, fuck, I found the best present for somebody, and they're going to flip out, and you give it to them, and they're like, that's so great. And you can tell they're struggling to put on their happiest voice because they're thrilled that you did something nice for them. But a part of them is like, but it's just you one step further. And I know that sounds like the bitchiest, shittiest story I could possibly tell. I wasn't happy that somebody got that for me. But, you know, we've been stuck inside for four weeks. Everybody's going a little stir crazy. So I can whine about the cards if I want to. No, I won't do that. I can't. I have to be happy. I have my Emily Car mug. And it's not like Emily was ever depressed. But anyway, back on point. This era of Disney is has always been my favorite. Uh, short of Alice in Wonderland, I think this is probably my favorite. Those two are my favorite Disney movies of all time. Now, I love, you know, Jungle Book, racism aside, 101 Dalmatians, that kind of stuff. The explosion that happened again in the 90s, kind of that Disney princess era that really kicked off, you could say with Little Mermaid, but I'd say especially The Lion King. None of that was really my jam. I know a lot of people call it sacrilegious that you don't like The Lion King. I don't. I I didn't like it as a kid. I don't care for most of what came out of that era. Maybe Rescuers Down Under. But to me, Little Mermaid was like my last favorite one. Or last of the ones I really enjoyed until like the Disney Pixar era kind of brought it back around again. But to me, Disney looks like this. It has that feel. And if we're going to talk about Winnie the Pooh, and that era of Disney, one of the major reasons for the success of this film is the music by the Sherman Brothers. Now, if you don't know who the Sherman Brothers are, you've heard their music. Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mary Poppins, Winnie the Pooh, countless other scores. There's an excellent documentary on Disney+, Plus, which I think everybody has at this point now, uh, where they get into the history of their career and how they got working with Disney. But you can't separate the music from this movie because just like the film itself it's so gentle and it sets such a wonderful tone that you feel so childlike and innocent and it manages to capture that quality in these very simple songs deceptively simple songs that do what the best musicals do the songs continue the story It's something that happens in bad musicals, bad animated films from the beginning of time up till now, where beginning of film, I should say, not beginning of time, where you're going along with the movie, song break, going along with the movie, song break. Perfect example of this, watch A Nightmare Before Christmas and watch The Corpse Bride. You'll understand exactly what I mean about song breaks. They don't further the story. But here... Everything from I'm a Little Black Rain Cloud, The Stoutness Exercises, Heffalumps and Woozles, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, The song about the blustery day talking about the rain when Piglet's putting the bottle out the window. All of that just moves the story along in such a wonderful way. And they're also very easy to learn. They're very easy for kids to sing along to without getting shitty and pandering. Because there's nothing worse... If you don't have kids, I'm sure you know somebody with kids, 
and you've been forced to watch dumb kids shows and you hear those songs and it just make it makes you want to mainline heroin right into the eye because they're so fucking painful and there's really no excuse for that it's just pablum where these songs are so simple and so infinitely comforting and wonderful but at no point do they feel like they're talking down to you they're just as exuberant as the rest of the film so as i said the film was broken up into into three original shorts that were released to kind of start to build up this presence of winnie the pooh in the culture and that started with winnie the pooh and the honey tree in 1966 and I have to say, Honey never looks as good in real life as it does in Winnie the Pooh, especially in the short. It's like growing up watching The Simpsons, and you think you know how beer is going to taste by looking at Duff beer, and I don't think I've ever had a beer taste as good as Duff beer looks, and it's the same with Honey. And this short is perfect. If you want to explain to somebody about Winnie the Pooh is, Show them Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. You get to know everybody's character courts, even though Piglet and Tigger aren't really featured in this one. You just get to know Pooh Bear and how simple his process is. And it's a very childlike simplicity. What should I do today? I don't know. I'm going to think about stuff. And I'm going to go have lunch. And I'm going to see my friends and get into some kind of shenanigans. Because when that's your only decision-making process, you usually end up with your fat ass stuck in a door. And that's fucking delightful. And also, this one is known for the introduction of Gopher. And Gopher, I don't know if anyone knows and or cares really at this point, but Gopher isn't in the original books. Uh, Walt Disney felt that they needed a more American character to help give the audiences a bit of a gateway. So what's, you know, what's Gopher? He's a factory worker. He's a coal miner. He's very Americana, you know, by the book. Let's get this done. And that's why he keeps saying over and over again in that short, I'm not in the book, you know. And it's just great. Infinitely quotable. It's lovely. I'm going to have a hard time digging into these, I think, because what the hell do you say about Winnie the Pooh? If you don't, if you don't like Winnie the Pooh, you're probably the kind of person that laughs when a dog gets kicked. You know, I'm not saying the kind of person that doesn't like dogs, because there's lots of reasons not to like a dog, or dogs in general. Maybe they stole your wallet one day, or beat you in a game of checkers, or tricked you out of your car. I don't know how you interact with dogs. That's between you and Jesus. But the kind of person that laughs when somebody kicks a dog. You know, we've all met those jackasses. And I think those are the people that don't like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Somebody's sitting there, I know, listening to this going, well, I'm not a fan of Winnie the Pooh, but I don't laugh when a dog gets kicked. Well, have you ever... Go kick a dog and see if you laugh. Please don't go kick dogs. This episode's getting delightfully all over the place. But yes, this first one is fantastic. We meet everybody. We get kind of an introduction to how the world works. And then things really kick off with... Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day. So this is the first time that we meet Piglet and Tigger. And that's what this one is really kind of known for. And the completely psychedelic acid trip that is the Heffalumps and Woozles song. Now, as a kid, we watched this and we're like, wow, that's fucking wild and funny and weird and over the top. Watch it as an adult. And... Watch it as an adult, if you can, high, 
And that sequence will fucking blow your mind. Now, there's a if you go back and look at the classic era of Disney, even from like Pinocchio forward, there's a lot of really wild stuff that they packed into some of these movies. You know, the the Lost Boys Island or whatever in Pinocchio, where they're all turned into donkeys and smoking cigars. When Oh, what was the other one I was thinking of? Alice in Wonderland is obviously a total drug trip. It's about doing drugs, and, you know, and then other gross stuff. But they 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 scrubbed that one up a bit, you know. Fantasia, drug trip. Heffalumps and Woozles is fucking drug trip. That is crazy to watch. And this one, especially, and also into Tigger Two, it's something that the movie did. This movie did really well, and it's something that. The TV show, The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, continued, but has been kind of lost in some of the newer ones, is being able to use these stories and these characters to balance a sense of gentleness and joy, but with kind of darker tones, darker emotions. And yes, I understand when I say dark in reference to Winnie the Pooh, that it's a very soft dark, but it's... It's kid fear, all right? It's the kind of fears we have as kids. And this movie and the New Adventures cartoon managed to present it in a way that you work through it, but none of it's treated as childish, as stuff you shouldn't be worried about, and you should just get the hell over it. You know, things like being afraid of the dark, having a nightmare, thunderstorms, having to move, like owl has to, you know, or hearing noises outside your windows that you've never heard before. And when we're kids, when we were little, these were real concerns. These were in our world. Now, unless, unfortunately, if you grew up in a house where you had, unfortunately, bigger concerns to worry about, whether that was domestic abuse or alcoholism, any of those things, I'm not speaking to that. These are real concerns, and it's easy to forget as we grow up how overwhelming stuff like that could be and how seriously we took that because those were the big hopefully those are the biggest things we had to worry about as kids and they become very real very quickly and i know lots of people that i i know i'm still obviously because i'm sitting here fucking 35 talking about winnie the pooh this emphatically i have never or tried my best not to leave that part of myself behind being able to remember how that felt and this whole idea of the grown-up, which I think for most of us we know now is a complete fallacy. There's no such thing as a grown-up. There's just older people in, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, escalating positions of authority. But the grown-up thing is horseshit. There's no such thing as a grown-up. But we need to know or at least believe in a grown-up when we're kids because the dark Nightmares, thunderstorms, noises outside the window are so overwhelming that we need some kind of authority figure to help us. And to watch these characters, and even just re-watching it now for prep, it's so wonderful to come back and revisit that and see how they work through it. Because one of the best things that Pooh Bear and these characters do is they work through it all together. Yes, Rabbit can get shitty about stuff, and Eeyore just needs to fucking just buck up. But nobody's, they might dismiss somebody's fear or problem 
quickly, like right at the beginning of an episode or at the beginning of these shows or these shorts, but they're always then treated with respect that they might not understand why their friends are feeling that way, but it's very, it's completely valid that their friends are having those feelings and they come to their aid to get through those feelings. And I think that's something we could all do with uh, a little more of with these days. You know, we don't have to agree with somebody how they're feeling, but we do have to acknowledge that they are feeling that way and how can we help them? You know, if Pooh Bear and them can do it, I think we can do it. And there's still few scenes as heartbreaking in cinema as when Piglet gives Owl their house. <laughs> and she's she tugging at his little, which sometimes looks like his skin. Sometimes it looks like Piglet's wearing a uh, some kind of onesie. We're never quite sure. Depends on who's animating him. Him, her. I think it's a him, but doesn't really matter. Piglet was way ahead of the curve on gender neutrality. Same with uh, Rabbit. So... But that scene's heartbreaking. But it's courage. He knows that he can help his friend more by doing this courageous thing for him. And what do they do? They all rally around Piglet to help him. That's fucking wonderful. It's fucking wonderful. Like, how can you not like that? Are you the kind of person that laughs at a kicked dog? Yes, I think you are. I think that's you. If you don't think that's absolutely wonderful and charming. Anyway, getting, getting some angst out. And then bringing us to... The third short, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 from 74. This is the one where Tigger kind of bounces to the forefront. Pun intended. And as we've gone on since then, you know, Winnie the Pooh is is obviously this huge cultural icon now. But I, I think it would be safe to say Tigger is just as or almost as big as he is. And of course, how can you not love Tigger? Paul Winchell did such an incredible job with this voice. And things like the, I can't do it, I won't embarrass myself, the famous Tigger laugh, the uh, TTFN, ta-ta for now. Those are actually ad-libs that Winchell did just in the studio recording. And there's so many little perfect touches like that that have become so iconic and connected to these characters that if hearing Tigger laugh doesn't warm your heart or make you happy, again, you've probably just kicked a dog. Plain and simple. But this one, this one is great. It's a perfect way to go out because there's an escalating level of theme as we're going along. The first, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree is very soft. It's, here's a very safe introduction to these characters. With Blustery Day, things start to go up a little. This one, again, still very softly, some real intercharacter dynamics going on. Rabbit's frustrations, Tigger's inability to control his behavior, all that stuff is there. Out hunting heffalumps and woozles and jagulars, you know, what it's like to not be playing safe and get yourself in trouble when Tigger and Rue get stuck up the tree. The fact that the Hundred Acre Woods in winter looks like a Bob Ross painting, and I finished prep for this, and I immediately watched like five episodes of The Joy of Painting, and they're all winter episodes, because that's what it looks like. And I, I said before, earlier in the episode, that Rabbit is kind of a shit. And, and he is. And he's, this is probably Rabbit at his worst. He literally leads Tigger off into the woods to lose him. Just hope they'll go out there and die somewhere in the woods. And then when he's at his weakest, he preys on that weakest weakness to get him to stop bouncing. That's really shitty behavior. It really is. But obviously, they come around to that. 
So it's just, it's just wonderful. The, the way that they animate it. So it looks like you're inside of a book and the narrator's talking to you and the narrator's talking to the characters and you see them turning pages. It's very proto Sin City. You know, I remember everyone was so excited when Sin City came out. Rightfully so. It's a fucking dope movie. But this is the first time we've seen this level of, you know, adaptation from a book to the screen. You've never seen it look. It looks like a story come to life. You know, well, Creepshow did that a little bit in the 80s. But I'm sorry. Winnie the Pooh did it first. Motherfucker. <laughs> I just love the idea of talking about Winnie the Pooh and getting to say motherfucker. And I apologize if anyone's listening to this with their kids thinking that, oh, it's Winnie the Pooh. It's going to be soft and family-friendly time. Well, it's a parental advisory on this stuff for a reason. And if I as an adult, if I can't swear while talking about Winnie the Pooh, then by golly, why the hell am I doing this? Oh, comfort. That's why. It's comfort movie month. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Comfort. But all of that stuff, this idea of your book coming to life, that was a big inspiration for me as a kid. We grew up in the library. We didn't have a lot of money growing up and libraries are free. So we spent a shit ton of time at libraries and we were voracious readers growing up and voracious players. Imaginative play was very encouraged in our house. It's why me and Jack are both writers now. It's because we came out of that childhood tradition of creating stories and creating adventures with your toys and in the backyard. So what the hell would be more inspiring for me? I, Jack likes Winnie the Pooh, but didn't get obsessed with it to the level that I did. She's not as obsessive as I am about most things. What would be better than a movie where you're watching somebody's stories come to life? Because that's what this is. It's Christopher Robin's stories about his toys doing things. You know, like, it, that's what it is. That's Toy Story. Everything comes from this. It's just seeds of toys coming to life. So that was hugely inspiring for me. And I, I worried about this stuff as a kid. You know, Toy Story was just, when that came out in the 90s, all that was for me was just a firm confirmation of everything I've been worried about as a kid. That my toys are, in fact, alive, and I should be worried about how they're feeling. That, yeah, that, that was horrible. Toy Story is amazing, don't get me wrong. But I'd always worried. I'd always wondered if I leave the room and they're doing stuff. Or if the ones in the basement feel alone because they're not in my room or any of that shit. So I'm glad that Winnie the Pooh and his buddies had kind of a their little own area to go out into, even when Christopher Robin wasn't around. That does bring us to the end of this one, though. And the end of this... Oh, I hate. It's one of the reasons why I... This movie is hugely comforting for me, and it's of the big guns I have to bring out. But one of the reasons for that is the ending. When Christopher Robin and Pooh are walking through the Hundred Acre Woods, Christopher Robin's going off to school, which they would deal with in Pooh's Grand Adventure. But when they're talking about doing nothing and asks Pooh if he'll ever forget him, and of course he won't, and then that closing narration, you know, wherever they go, somewhere on top of that, in that forest, a bear will always be waiting. Knife! In the heart. Every time. Doesn't make me cry every time I watch it, but a good amount of the time. Oh, just absolutely brutal, that part. Ugh, I hate it. But it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect because you're dealing, you're giving this stuff to a young audience. A very young audience that gets into Winnie the Pooh. And having this wraparound lets them know that stories end. And... 
the things you play with, your toys and your imagination, your interaction with that, it's okay if it changes. You don't ever let it go, but it's how much of your life it takes up changes. And that's perfectly fine. Like when you, we go away to school, even if it's just public school or you move away for college or jobs or whatever, it's okay that there's an ending because we all know it's not the ending if you don't want it to be. If you let it be the ending, that's what the Christopher Robin movie dealt with so wonderfully. And that's a tearjerker of a film. But it's just perfect. The whole thing wraps up in such a nice, perfect package. And this movie, just like Winnie the Pooh, is always going to be sitting there waiting for us. And as we all know, this ushered in this huge explosion of Winnie the Pooh in pop culture. And he's gone through so many different movies and cartoons to varying degrees of quality. We'll talk about that in the recommendation sections at the end. But I can't recommend this movie enough. I really can't. Whether, you know, especially because we're all we're all stuck inside and it every day it looks like it's going to be longer and longer and longer. We're not we're not even to the middle of this thing yet. You know, we're it's not the, you know, the beginning of the end, but we might be at the end of the beginning now, but that we still as we know when Churchill said that, still have a long way to go. But put it on. You know, if you don't own the movie, it's all on Disney Plus. Go and watch it. You'll just feel better. If you have your, if you have kids at home, put it on for them. I guarantee you that they won't just feel better. You'll feel good watching them. And you'll probably be surprised how quick the songs and stuff come back to you. And how quick you can start to hum. If you even don't remember the words, how quick you can start to hum that along. And how quickly you start to feel safe again and secure again. And even if it's only for an hour and a half, you know, even if all this shit wasn't going on out in the world right now, feeling good and safe for an hour and a half is more than most people get in a year. So not to get really emotional with you right there, but that's what it comes down to for me. That's what it's always come down to with me for Winnie the Pooh is I just feel better when I watch it. And that to me, that's the perfect definition of a comfort movie. So check it out. Something else that always makes me feel better, for the most part, unless the episodes suck, is Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So we're on, obviously, to episode 15, which is called If Wishes Were Horses. And this episode aired May 16th, 1993. And I'm talking a little slower because I'm pulling up the synopsis. Okay. Here we go. Well, Dax investigates an unusual energy reading near DS9 to see if it's dangerous for the station, people's imaginations suddenly come alive, causing chaos. Okay, this one isn't as bad as the storyteller, but it does, it veers dangerously close to a high level of, how can I put this, um, womp womp? <laughs> it gets a really cute idea in any story, whether it's a cartoon or Star Trek or whatever, this idea of characters' imaginations coming to life and running wild. It's a nice mix of fantasy and sci-fi. And despite the, the womp-wompedness of this, there are really some fun moments in this episode. Anytime Cork and Odo spar is always great. And 
the whole episode, Quark is giving him shit because Odo keeps saying, I don't have an imagination, waste of time, something stupid that solids do. So when Odo finally does imagine something, what is it? It's fucking Quark in a jail cell. Great. The darker side or the, I think the dumb side of this is the Dax and Julian love story situation, especially in the early episodes, the early seasons, it's one of the few elements of the show that has aged like milk. It's aged really badly. And I get it. It was a product of the time. At the time for Julian to be so persistent and so beggy and not taking no's or responding to any kind of cues or anything, that was unfortunately, that was just how it was. You know, no just usually meant just ask again and be persistent because, we you know, we grew up with Han Solo as the romantic archetype. And what does he do in Empire Strikes Back? Forces himself on Princess Leia after she physically hits him to get him away. So, of course, people are going to be a little confused. Now, we're better than that. Obviously, we're better than that. But that's it's cringy. It's very cringy. Those parts of the show. This one isn't bad, to be honest. The the Rubble Stiltskin stuff's a little... It's, it's just not bad, but it's also just not a DS9 episode in any way, shape, or form. This story would have fit so much better on Voyager or on TNG. Follow me on this. Same setup. The crew encounters some kind of alien that doesn't understand the concept of our imagination and starts bringing our imagination, things we imagine, to life to try to understand us better. How much better would that have worked if the situation is starting to escalate, paralleling a story about Data, who's trying to already come to grips with the concept and the reasons for us having an imagination while the ship runs wild. And then those two stories interject and Data has to use what he's learned about imaginations and how important that is to humanity to solve the problem. That would have made for some good goddamn Star Trek. The problem is here, the story that they're telling has absolutely no bearing or impact on anybody. It's nothing. It's just a story. It's better than Storytellers, better than some of the bad episodes, but it's just, it's just okay. And the great thing about DS9 is eventually we're going to move past the episodes just being okay. So not bad, not great, could have been done better elsewhere, but check it out. It's not one worth skipping. So there's still some fun stuff to be had in there. For a book, I read Richard Morgan's 2002 novel, Altered Carbon. Uh, as a total caveat, I have not watched the show on Netflix. Uh, this one was a blind buy. I am a sucker for cyberpunk. Uh, Blade Runner, The Matrix, Nemesis, William Gibson's books, when they're good. Uh, I, I love cyberpunk. So I picked up this book. I'm like, I think I recognize the title. And I flipped the back over and it said, a blend of hardcore cyberpunk and detective no- hard-boiled detective noir. Yep, that one came home with me. That's all I needed to know. The cyberpunk elements in this story are interesting. It's the whole idea of a digital consciousness and that it can be moved from one body to another. Uh, as they call it, human bodies are now only known as sleeves. And this idea of re-sleeving or re-sleeving as you're 
consciousness can be transferred over great distances or beamed around into these little hardwired stacks, they call them, these chips that sit at the base of our spine. And that's all you are. You're, you're digitized consciousness, and they can move you between bodies. That's neat, because it gets to delve into what kind of effect that would have on people and the world at large. That the most power a person can now accumulate is time. And that's what they call these people who have become effectively immortal. They call them meths after Methuselah. And you, you're dealing with characters in this book that are, and some of them are, you know, 250, 300 plus years old. And they've just been moving their consciousness from one body to another. And we live in a world already where the rich and powerful don't seem to have any concern or comprehension of the value of human life or people. And this just really escalates that. Because why would they? If you are if you are 300 years old, how could you process the value of life anymore? Because life doesn't actually have any value. It's just getting more time. There are common elements to cyberpunk here. There's the neon, there's the trench-coated detective shooting people, you know, going out and solving problems, you know, at the same time following a very hard-boiled format, you know, a very Raymond Chandler-esque situation. A detective is hired by somebody rich to solve some sort of crime, and that leads him into the seedy underbelly of the world, whether it's gambling or crooks or whorehouses, whatever. It's tropes that Chandler and them invented back in the day. And it follows a similar process here, intermixing it with these great cyberpunk elements, right down to printed paper and stuff like that, and people smoking and drinking and all that stuff. It's interesting, but it's overwritten as fuck. Way overwritten. There is a lot of first book fat on this book. As a first novel, first published novel, it's impressive, but it's overwritten. You could tell that he was having just, I got to stuff everything I can into this book instead of just really focusing on the core character story. And some of the background information is neat. You know, when he makes comments on the fact that we can talk to animals now, which is just kind of a throwaway line. There's a couple of pretty graphic sex scenes in the book that, like, I'm not a prude. I don't care if there's sex in the book, but I can't figure out what purpose it served to the story other than to make the main character look like kind of a pimp. Like, he's just this tough guy going around having just banging chicks, and it's very graphic. And when I say graphic, I, I mean, like, graphic sex. I can't, like, I'm not a prude again, but I just... It's stuff like that that I don't know why it's there because it doesn't further the story in any way that couldn't have been furthered in a in a different way or a better way. But hey, whatever. If that guy wants to write, you know, three, four plus pages of very graphic, detailed sex, that's what the dude wants to do. That's his jam. But, you know, it gets to a point where it's like, okay. They're going at it again, and there's no chapter breaks. You're just, you're staying right with all the goo and the fluids, but whatever. I haven't read the sequels. I know there's two more that he did to kind of a trilogy. I think a much more streamlined novel set in the same world would be very interesting because there's so much world building and so much information thrown at you that 
when you try to pack that much world building to the top of the iceberg, then your characters tend to get a little muddy and confusing as to who's doing what. And when I say iceberg, it's a, a writing concept that all your, you know, you see the, the little bit of an iceberg poking above the water. We know that there's, you know, 10 times as much underneath. That's all your background and your world building. And then what little bit comes to the top is what you need to tell the story. Here, it just fucking jam it into everybody's face. So if you're into cyberpunk, if you're into new sci-fi ideas or just kind of a, a somewhat new take on classic tropes, check it out. It is worth reading. It does make me want to check out the show to see how they handled the changes. There's better cyberpunk out there, out there but there's also worse cyberpunk. But if you're a fan of the genre, check it out. So, recommendations. Again, these seem pretty friggin' obvious to me. The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. That was the cartoon that was on TV in the late 80s, early 90s. Not the live-action House at Pooh Corner. That's nightmare fuel. But check it out anyway on YouTube, because it's fucking crazy. The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, uh, 70 or 80 episodes. It's when Jim Cummings took over the voice of Winnie the Pooh, and he's performed it and now to this day, and has since taken over Tigger as well. The show's great. There's there's not a, a dull episode in the bunch. Uh, varying quality, but it preserves the spirit of the original movie, I think, better than any other version that they've done. I think the show preserved those original elements better, while still updating them for a bit more of an 80s and 90s modern sensibility, without losing that original sense of joy and comfort and compassion. And Christopher Robin, the live-action movie with Ewan McGregor playing the grown-up Christopher Robin. I avoided that movie for a long time, because the trailer made me sob like a baby. And I watched the movie, and I sobbed like a baby. It's it's what would happen if Christopher Robin went off to school and actually forgot about Pooh. But Pooh and all of his friends stayed in the Hundred Acre Woods waiting for Christopher Robin to come back. I don't even like talking about it because it's making my heart hurt. It's very cute. There's some dark moments in it, but it's very sweet and it's very cute. And it's all about getting back in touch with your childhood and your imagination and how important those connections are. So check them out. Books, because uh, we talked about cyberpunk. Uh, William Gibson, obviously the high prince of cyberpunk. Uh, Burning Chrome, his short story collection, and his first novel, Neuromancer. Awesome. Uh, Neuromancer is a tough read. It took me on uh, my second read is when I really enjoyed it. But Burning Chrome, uh, some of the short stories in there are amazing. It was the first use of the term cyberpunk, first use of the term The Matrix. He pioneered so many of these core concepts that we now take for granted in pop culture uh, to this day. But though that's where I would start, is, is those two books. And then if you find you like it, go on from there. But yes, excellent. Next week... As it stands right now, uh, next week, Comfort Movie Stuff's going to continue, and Jack's actually going to be joining me, and we're going to be talking about one of our collective favorite comfort movie genres as kids, and that was Pauly Shore movies. Yes, don't care, love Pauly Shore. So that's as it stands right now. That might change, but that's probably what we're going forward with. 
Until then, you can find me on Facebook at the Steal My Name or at Steal My Name Cast. That's it, and on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Uh, like, subscribe, share, tell your friends, all that great stuff. Uh, people are listening right now, and it, it really does warm my heart to see that there's even been you know seven plays in the last 24 hours. I'm the best. So I know it seems small, and there's people that you know put their podcast out, and oh, I got 38,000 listens in the first five minutes. Eh, I'm not there. And if I never get there, whatever. If even one person hears this and can deal with the the massive shifts in tone that this episode had, and it kind of brighten your day a little bit, that's it. That works for me. That makes me feel better right now. If I can take the time to do this for you and for myself, we both get something out of it. Fucking perfect. Absolutely perfect. So thank you once again, and until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.